Women on the Rise is supported by The Riveter, a modern union for working women, offering content, community, and co-working spaces, all designed with a focus on women and work. I've been a member of The Riveter since nearly the beginning and have proudly watched them expand from Seattle to cities around the country. You might even remember that their CEO and founder, Amy Nelson, was my very first guest on this podcast. Countless collaborations and friendships have come from my kitchen conversations and post-event chats with my fellow Riveters, both women and men. The Riveter believes that equity and opportunity should be a reality, not a promise. Visit www.theriveter.co to learn more. And by Armoire. Do you love variety but hate the clutter and expense of new clothes? That is totally me. So I just signed up for Armoire, a clothing rental service for today's boss lady. Armoire gives me access to designer clothes I can exchange on my schedule for a flat monthly fee. I get access to a guilt-free flow of new clothes without the hassle of shopping or dry cleaning. You can ask anyone. I hate shopping. Women on the Rise listeners can try Armoire today for $100 off your first month using code WOTR100. That's WOTR100. Visit www.armoire.style to get started. I relax, but it's because of this thing called neuroception. My brain and body are receiving neurobiological signals that they can relax now because they're safe and they're connected. And then that is the platform for this higher level thinking that can make change. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm executive coach and lifestyle expert, Lara Dolch. And each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, mindset, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover new insights that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Hey, podcast listeners, Lara here. Quick reminder for you, if you're working on any big goals this fall, especially if you feel like you don't quite have the energy and confidence you'd like to achieve them. I work with women like you who need to prioritize feeling good so they can get that more they want out of career and life. I help them overcome their personal obstacles to eating better, exercising more, and managing time and stress. Then we create a full plan. I call it the Vibrant Health Playbook for working towards a big personal goal. If that sounds like something you could use, I invite you to check out my eight-week Vibrant Health Playbook signature coaching program by visiting lauradolch.com slash Vibrant Health Playbook. Fall may seem like a counterintuitive time to add feeling better to your already full to-do list, but my clients will tell you that prioritizing feeling better makes that to-do list feel a lot lighter. You can even get a sense of what it might be like by listening to my interview with my client Amy Lorimer on the podcast last season. And don't worry, I designed Vibrant Health Playbook with busy women in mind. It's bite-sized and easier than you might think to roll into your life. So be sure to check it out at lauradolch.com slash Vibrant Health Playbook or email me with questions at hello at lauradolch.com. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may know that I'm a self-proclaimed psychology nerd. My fascination with human behavior and psychology started in middle school or 
maybe it was early high school. I'm not entirely sure when I was lucky enough to take a child psychology course. It continued into college where I eventually earned a degree in psychology at the University of Virginia, which eventually led me to a career first in marketing, which is really just psychology. And now as a coach, facilitator, educator, and learning content specialist, all in service to helping people grow and learn by harnessing the extraordinary power of their minds. I'm constantly surprised by how few people understand that power, which is why I'm so excited to introduce you to this week's guest. Mika Breher is a social business pioneer turned leadership coach and educator. After 10 years leading social and economic justice initiatives, she pivoted to neuropsychology with the hunch that to change our systems, we need to start with ourselves. Today, she's earning her MS in applied neuroscience and teaching people to be emotional virtuosos in Seattle, Washington. Mika and I talked about what exactly neuropsychology is and why you should care if you want to create change in your life, relationships, and work. How understanding our bodies and minds helps us create change, collaborate, and even build better teams. Mika's tips for understanding how your brain works and using it to make or break habits. And why working with your feelings instead of against them is a more effective way to create shifts in work and life. You'll have to forgive my moments of nerding out during the interview. I couldn't help myself. Enjoy my chat with Mika. Mika, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Gladly. I love this. This is so fun. I, I especially love when I have friends on the podcast. Um, and I, I, th- I think I can consider you a friend at this point. When we've known each other for what, like a year-ish, maybe a little less. Yeah, I think so. Um, sort of beginning professionally and always having really extraordinary conversations. So yeah, totally. Deeper and deeper. Totally, totally. Well, and that comes from the fact that we're both, um, you know, loosely, I'll use the, the term psychology nerd loosely. I know that, you know, more specific in your case, but that's, yeah, I mean, it's obviously an interest of mine and very integral to my work. And because you focus more specifically on the neuroscience side of things, I find that completely fascinating. And I think it's useful for my listeners to kind of hear some of how that plays into their lives and, and behavior change and their relationships and all that good stuff. So let's start here. What drew you to the study of neuropsychology in the first place? Totally. That's a great question. I actually had a big pivot. I spent the first 10 years or so of my career working in social impact. I worked in social business with a lot of people who were interested in really revamping our economy and making it something that supported people and supported planet. And in those spaces, I found that even though we had these extraordinary ideals, we would fight with each other. We would be mean to ourselves. I would be mean to myself. And it was pretty much everywhere. It was like in organizations I saw, people I consulted for, and also in me. So doing that, I got curious. I just was always fascinated with why is it that we can have big ideals that we're working for, but we don't live them out. And I was already a psychology nerd. I was reading about this kind of stuff all the time. You know this, you talk about self-care quite a bit, but I got to a point where I was kind of sick. I would cry on my way to work. Mm. I felt like I was just carrying this huge weight of a sick economy on my shoulders and decided to, to pivot 
to do something that I was really just so excited about. So I got into studying psychology and in doing that, I started to have these ideas like, oh, people have these inherent needs that they're always trying to meet. Their subconscious storylines were running, but they were still sort of soft and squishy. And coming from the business world and particularly studying accounting, I was like, I want something hard. (laughs) I want to be able to touch it. Um, So I just dug deeper and eventually I found myself studying the nervous system and I would just pour over textbooks for fun, like quite literally. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons I love you. You have the same curiosity and love of learning that I do, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then when I got to a point where I could read about the nervous system and see like, oh, we literally need belonging. We need it. It's not like a fluffy ideal. It's something that our body needs. It created so much ease for me. And it created a platform for me to teach and talk to people that... I don't know. I'm still, I'm still writing. I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Yeah. You know, actually I, I just realized I should back up a little bit and ask you to define neuropsychology. Like what is neuropsychology? Yeah. So neuropsychology is interdisciplinary. It's looking both at the study of the brain, but then the study of the brain as it relates to the study of the, the self and even the self in relationship. So when you're talking about neuroscience, you know, that's a huge field. And some people who study neuroscience are studying how a particular gene affects this protein in a cell and then what that has to do with neurogenerative disease. And then other people who are studying neuroscience are talking about behavior. How does my relationship with my mom affect the way my nervous system is able to regulate and then change how I engage with my manager as an adult. Mm. So the latter is more in this world of neuropsychology, looking at behavior and selfhood as it relates to the study of the brain or the body. Whereas the former is more about disease. Mm, And there's less of the psychological component. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense for sure. Yeah, well, and it also, I think, sheds light on on why you, in your earlier career, sort of were drawn to this study as um, as a way to create change, really. Like, you know, you were talking about, like, we have these lofty ideas, we're not doing anything. So why is neuropsychology kind of, in your view, the missing piece to creating change? Ooh, juicy question. <laughs> I got lots of them. Oh, geez. Yeah. Why is neuropsychology crux or this missing piece? Mm-hmm. To creating change. To creating change. So when I was working in creating change, I was looking at big systems. Really, I was looking at capitalism and how we have this structure where there's an owning class and a working class and how do they interact with each other and what does that do to our larger social systems. But really, we were talking about ideals where we were supporting life in each other, in ourselves, in the world we lived in. And when you get to that bigger ideal, again, it just gets so freaking squishy. How do you do that? (laughs) What do you do? 
but then when you get down to looking at our physical system, it's like, oh, that's what this system wants. The system wants to feel safe. It's always organizing for safety. Mm. The system really wants to belong. It's always organizing for belonging. And there's this way that when you can get down to that root, you can start to really treat yourself in a way where you're creating more life. It's almost like you can embody this big system transformation that we were talking about on this very, very micro scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, starting with yourself, right? Yeah, starting with yourself. But then I think there's one more piece to that, which is when you do that, it actually enables brain states that are conducive for teamwork, for creativity, for collaboration and innovation. It's actually those brain states that we need to be able to usher in this big change that we're talking about. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I know that a lot of your work, you know, is with companies and in sort of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in sort of the leadership space. And it sounds like a lot of that very much applies to helping whether it's leaders or, you know, employees or whatever, like you said, collaborate and and work well together. How have you seen that help your clients in the workplace? Yeah. So I work a lot with folks who are solving big, hairy problems, whether it's in their organization, they're, you know, trying to push out a product and they have a certain timeline and there's all these constraints that they're working within, or they're talking on a maybe a more systemic level, a social, social systems level. And gosh, um, how does this neuropsychology component help when they're in those situations? And I think it's, it's the simplicity of it. There's this way that like when you have something you can look at and point to in yourself, it offers a, a way to, almost like a compass that you can look towards. And then um, what people tell me is they never had any clue that they had emotions or why Mm. they had emotions, that it's almost like there's this thing that's been happening inside their body forever and it's been impacting them, but they were so unconscious to it or it's so much the sea that you swim in Mm -hmm. that it you know it kind of just goes on autopilot yeah and when you have someone point to it and say hey there's this thing happening it's it's actually pretty simple but once you see it it's revolutionary mm-hmm. it enables so much choice so i think there's something about having simple principles that's really useful um and being able to point to them and touch them that makes them really trustworthy And I think there's something about developing awareness that creates space for choice. Yeah. And then what that supports is all of a sudden you are able to really cultivate a great relationship with yourself, which means you're more able to do the work you really want to do. And then you're also able to support that kind of relationship on your teams. Mm -hmm. So your team just becomes extraordinarily more connected, but then as a result, they can work faster, they're more creative, they're more innovative. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, the way I'm sort of internalizing this is that just because I'm looking at things from the perspective of, you know, sort of leadership development, helping leaders and teams cultivate that 
emotional intelligence, which I know is a term that, that you've used with me before in describing your work, has a solid business case too, right? It's not, it's, I mean, yes, of course it helps the individual. Um, and then you, you know, you look at leaders inside corporations and obviously they, they need to have some kind of business case. And I'm seeing both, like there's this personal benefit to sort of that self-awareness and being able to make the choices based on that. And there's also a business case for organizations. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the whole, that's, that's the whole enchilada. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually what's really amazing about it. Because if we look into the workplace right now, people want to be treated as humans. Like that's just a demand of any talent that you're bringing in, any employee. But then you can do that just because, you know, you want to be nice. Or you can do it because actually what happens is you get more effective teams. Exactly. I mean, and and again, whatever the motivation, whatever, it doesn't, I mean, you know, my perspective is I don't care why you do it. Whatever your initial motivation, it still makes the workplace a more pleasant place to be. And ultimately that helps both your people and your business. And, you know, why wouldn't you do that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious about in terms of habit change because, you know, a lot of the work that I do with clients, you know, comes down to that. And many of us struggle to create new habits, certainly in the area of health, but also in lots of other areas. What, what tips do you have for how to leverage the way our brains are wired (laughs) to help us make or break habits? So the first thing I would notice is that moment when you notice you're doing something you don't like. And the first thing I do and I think it's the first thing most people do is you beat up on yourself about it. Yeah. Like, ah, I did that thing again. (laughs) Like bad me. (laughs) Right? Do you Mm -hmm. do that? Oh my gosh. I do it less now than I did before I became a coach just because, you know, I've sort of trained my brain. But yeah, for sure, I still do it. Yeah, see, and there you go. It's the trained your brain. So what happens in that moment is you're actually um, putting yourself into a state where you can't make as much change. As soon as you beat yourself up, you put yourself down, you're creating less opportunity for your brain to make new connections. Mm, That's so interesting. Okay, say more about that. Well, basically, we need to be in a state where we feel like we've done nothing wrong. Like, can you imagine... I don't know, someone who you know, like really, really loves you saying like, you're just totally okay. Mm. And that like feeling of relaxation in your body. Yeah. So when you're in that embodied state, like, oh, sweet baby, you've done nothing wrong. I love you so much. Mm -hmm. It's from that place that you're actually able to experience the most like leverage for change. So when we're going in, we're saying make changes. And then I'm like saying, you know, don't do that. Stop that. What we'll see in fMRI scans was when people are stressed out, like that really tightened place that more places in the more conscious thinking part of the brain, higher parts of the brain will go black. They'll, mm. they'll be um, just less receptive. Like they, they aren't actually working. They're not firing as much. Mm-hmm. So rather when you're in a place where you're completely calm, you're open, you're relaxed, the brain is acting at its optimum potential. 
there's there's more firing happening. So therefore, you can utilize you know this aspect of neuroplasticity to create new new pathways. But as soon as someone is shut down, it's like you're just operating out of the limbic brain. You're just operating out of your like deep reactive places. You don't have access to more conscious and aware, like higher level thinking. That's so interesting. I, I It's so fascinating too for me as a coach because everything you just described supports the way that I could, like, so for example, one of the approaches that I have always taken as it relates to food specifically is this idea of adding in instead of focusing on taking things out, right? Which feels like a threat to, you know, it's like, you know, I'm bad because I eat this thing and no, 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 focus on just adding things in. And what I'm hearing from you is that approaches like that they work because of this receptive state that you're in where you don't feel bad anymore, right? You feel, it's it's so interesting to hear the neuroscience backing that up. I'm like, oh, that's why that works. <laughs> totally, yes. And I think this is so interesting and that's, I think I was telling you earlier, I really love the work of Dan Siegel and really this whole world of interpersonal neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what they're saying is that your your body is so much engaged with your brain. And when you're in this physiological state of calm, which is actually completely subconscious, like by me sort of visualizing my mom saying like, it's okay, sweet baby. Like, I love you. You're fine. I relax, but it's because of this thing called neuroception my brain and body are receiving neurobiological signals that they can relax now because they're safe and they're connected. And then that is the platform for this higher level thinking that can make change. Yeah, totally. So it sounds to me like a lot of the work is well, the self-talk, right? As you said, like rather than beating yourself up, like, you know, working on noticing that and and shifting that self-talk. But it also sounds like practices that allow you to be in that physiological state, which, you know, I'm going to be a cliche and say, like, for example, meditation, I'm sure there are others or, you know, yoga or whatever physical practices that help you get into that state are, that's part of why that's useful too, when you're creating change. Is that sort of what you see as well? And what practices do you think help with that? Well, I'd say yes. And, um, I think what's really tricky about when we start to talk about practices is what's your intention with the practice. Mm -hmm. My road for self-care is I used to do all the right things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Totally. It becomes like a checklist. Yeah. Like stressful. It's stressful. I ate right. I meditated for 30 minutes. I, you know, like (laughs) went on, uh, three trail runs this week, blah, 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 blah. And if you're doing it from that place, what you're recreating is more stress in the system. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. Uh huh. So we want to decrease stress in the system. So I actually I love this phrase. I'll use it with um, with clients sometimes, and it's like, "Where's my delicious yes?" Mm. Like I'm when I say delicious yes, it's like I'm looking for that reaction in the body if I'm making a decision. And I'm, may I say, B, I'm like deciding between, you know, choice A and choice B, which choice lets my body completely relax, enter into that like yummy, delicious, oh, I feel so connected. I feel so good. 
So I think that doing practices, if they can help you learn that embodied state of like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I love myself. That's awesome. But if you're doing them in a way that's like regulating yourself Mm -hmm. or controlling yourself, it's not effective. Right. Yeah. Or like, you know, punishing yourself or or whatever. I mean, which, you know, you often see with self-care choices, especially around food and exercise. I think that that can be a real trap for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Our culture is very focused on strategies. And I like to say the strategies are awesome, but we need to look at the intention beneath the strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I totally resonate with that for sure. And I think it's, you know, I'll just say this, that finding those things that create, as you said, that delicious, yes, takes time and experimentation, you know, because it's different for everyone. And I think, you know, my listeners will know that I'm a big fan of this sort of experimentation framework to figure out kind of what works. And it's okay if it takes, if you don't know the answer right now. Totally. And I think, honestly, that's why something like meditation or yoga could be so good, is it offers you a place to just connect with yourself and start to understand what does feel good and what doesn't feel good. It can help you like increase your awareness. Absolutely. I'm curious to know, just on a more personal level, you've talked a little bit about how you frame self-care. What do you struggle with when it comes to, however you define self-care? So maybe that's the first part. How do you define self-care? And then what's your biggest struggle when it comes to practicing it or however you want to frame that? Yeah. So when I think about how I define self-care, there's actually a story that comes up for me, which is the other day I was walking with a friend and she said, I've been quoting you all the time lately. And I'm like, what did I say that you should be saying? That's a compliment. Yeah. I was like, that's super sweet. And also, and then she told me this thing I told her and I really didn't remember telling it to her. And, but I've been thinking about it all week. And I think it really is how I define self-care. And it was this moment where she's a parent of a two-year-old and It's my friend. Her husband is out of town for business. Her two-year-old can't go to sleep. And her options are, you know, tell her two-year-old to go to sleep, tell her it's okay, or tell her um, what she did, which was she took her out to the window and she said, I hear how much you miss daddy. Like, let's blow daddy kisses. So they blew daddy kisses. And then her two-year-old just went to sleep like that. And she told me that story. And I was like, oh my God, you just did self-care. Like, um, that's just this amazing example of how to work with our nervous systems rather than against them in the act of self-care. And really what that was, was she didn't, um, say, no, don't have your feelings. Um, or she didn't try to make everything okay. Like it's okay. Daddy's going to come back, feel okay. And you can see how both of those sort of say the feelings are bad, get rid of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Instead, it was like, oh, you're feeling sad because you miss your daddy. Let's go do something to take care of the fact that you miss your dad. Let's blow him kisses. Yeah. And then she goes to sleep. And what happens then is the emotion is it's allowed. It's let to be okay. And then we care for the need of the emotion, which is to connect with the father. Mm-hmm. And then that is what enables the nervous system to calm. 
It's that connection. So when I'm thinking about self-care with myself, oh my God, I try to silence my feelings all the time. I'm so annoyed with them. I'm like, just shut up, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I have things to do. And then I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Like, hey, feeling, um, you know, I hear you. What do you need? Um, And that's from this embodied place. It's not just, you know, like saying the words. Um, but really like, oh, you're, you're stressed and you're really anxious right now. Oh, it's because you're scared. Like I get that you're scared. How can I take care of that? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, it really, really does. It reminds me of this framework around, um, cravings that the, my clients will recognize, which is this idea of sort of deconstructing cravings, like getting underneath why you're having a craving for X, Y, Z, because it's not about, it's, you know, with food in particular, it's never about the food, right? It's, it's about some, well, sometimes it is, but often it is not. And it's about meeting some emotional need. And if you can acknowledge what that is, identify what that is, acknowledge what it is and find a way to address the underlying emotional need, sometimes, often, the craving goes away because it wasn't the thing that was going to solve it in the first place. But it all comes back to this, to your point, like that looking at the feelings and the emotions from an embodied, self-aware state. And um, it takes time to, to cultivate that. So I really appreciate some of the strategies that you shared around doing that. And also just, you know, for people who are more uh, science oriented and like you want like a, like a thing to like touch and feel. I think that this, this background can really help with that. Yeah. It, for me, like, you know, I did a lot of these practices because, um, people told me they worked Mm -hmm. and, and then they worked and I was like, wow, that works. But it was really hard for me to trust until I started to read about why it works. And when I started to understand that, um, I guess just started to understand the nervous system on a deeper level. It was like, Oh, 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 um, we just so need to be connected with. Yeah. 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 As we're wrapping things up, is there, I know this is kind of probably going to be a hard question to answer, but is there like a, um, like one book or, or some other, like a resource that you can recommend for people to go to if they want to understand a little bit more about this, um, without maybe (laughs) recommending the textbook, although some people might be like us and like to read the textbooks occasionally. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm even struggling. I'm noticing myself that I'm like, Oh, I'm really stopping and not explaining the science behind things. Um, because it is so hard to explain in a way that is succinct and accurate. Um, so I'll say one thing that I'm personally doing is working on putting together like infographics basically that explain subtleties of how the nervous system works in a way that like a lay person could just look at and get. So those will be rolling out on my website slowly over the summer. And, you know, by the time people are listening to this in the fall, it should be a really nice resource. And tell everyone what your website is. Yeah. So it's franklyeq.com. Frankly, like the word and EQ meaning emotion quotient.com. Perfect. So that's one place to go. If you're interested in looking at the nervous system from the level of trauma, and understanding how relational trauma affects the nervous system, then I would read Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. That's just, it's a, it's a landmark book. Everyone should read it. I highly recommend it. 
And Dan Siegel is a really awesome author to look into. He writes a bunch of books about parenting, but he also has a book called Mindsight that is about developing an understanding of how your brain works so that you can have better emotional skills as you're working with it. And he just came out with a book that I haven't actually read yet. I think it's called Aware. And that one's also made for your leadership development audience. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for sharing those. And and definitely for my listeners, definitely check out Mika's website at Frankly EQ because I'm excited for those infographics. I feel as though I will both consume and share those once they are ready. So thank you. Yeah, totally. They've been really fun to make. Thank you so much for your time, Mika. This was so fun. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. It's fun to get to talk about what I'm most passionate about with um, someone who asks really good questions about it. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. If you're ready now to wake up with the energy, clarity, and confidence to take on your goals, visit lardalch.com slash women on the rise to get a few resources I pulled together just for Women on the Rise listeners. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit lauradolch.com slash podcast. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. It's a huge help to the show and I truly appreciate it. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Thank you.